The Reformation took place in the 16th century, but it had many precursors. And I would argue that the year 1440 was of decisive importance in the eventual Reformation. I'm thinking of two separate events, the first of which has more immediate relevance for ecclesiastical affairs. So it was in 1440 that a scholar by the name of Lorenzo Valla demonstrated that a document that was called the Donation of Constantine was actually a forgery. This document was supposedly executed by the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, and it gave temporal power over the western half of the Roman Empire directly to the Pope. In the ongoing struggles of jurisdiction that marked the Middle Ages, the battles between emperors and kings and popes, uh, Vala's proof that this was a forgery gave ammunition to temporal powers who opposed the Pope. However, there was actually a more famous event that took place about the year 1440. We're not exactly sure when it happened, but it's close to that time. It had a much subtler effect on the church, and it's one that we rarely take account of. And I'm speaking of the invention of the movable type printing press by Johannes Gutenberg. Uh, what this has made possible is a great increase in individualism. Before the widespread availability of books, literacy was a rare and indeed a somewhat unnecessary skill for most people. This meant that persons were more dependent on direct communication for information. You couldn't read the newspaper. You had to have someone tell you what happened. Uh, you, you couldn't read it for yourself. You couldn't click on Google and, and find out what's going on in the world. We had to trust persons who were messengers and came and told us things. You learned the gospel by going to church, not by reading the Bible. You were taught your prayers by your parents. You heard homilies, you saw stained glass windows and statues, and this is how you learned the gospel. Gutenberg's invention suddenly allowed individuals by themselves to read texts in private and draw their own conclusions. And only slowly, I think, have we grappled with the implications of this change. Let me give you one example. If you sit down and read the New Testament, Paul has a huge footprint. Peter does not. Peter only composed two letters, and they're quite short, especially the second one. It's no wonder, then, that Paul suddenly emerges at the Reformation as the apparent precursor to Luther. Whereas the Roman and Byzantine churches had, for centuries, portrayed Peter and Paul in a stance of friendship in their shared martyrdom at Rome, suddenly the Reformers were depicting them more like rivals clashing over various points of doctrine preaching even different Gospels. Another subtle effect of this shift is that the older Catholic and Orthodox understanding of Peter and Paul clasping hands and witnessing to one Lord and one Church, an understanding based in lived experience of a unified Church, not just in texts, this appears to the new individualist readers as a deliberate falsification of what you can read in the Bible, where Peter and Paul supposedly clashed all of this makes it harder to preach on today's feast than it ought to be, because what we celebrate today is the witness of martyrdom of two great pillars of the apostolic church, both of whom, in the words of St. Paul, give witness to one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of us all. And it is our communion with Peter and his successors that guarantees this unity of faith and our shared baptism that brings this about. If I may paraphrase my novice master on this point, truth is not something that we take for ourselves by reading books. This is because truth is a person, and we share in truth by our encounter with the love of Jesus Christ, that love that utterly transformed both Peter and Paul, who were, let's remember, before that, Simon and Saul. It is their shared testimony to the love of Christ that binds Peter and Paul and overcomes their disagreements and personal weaknesses and can overcome ours. And so if we wish for peace and unity in the church, in our communities, if we wish for order and justice in the world, then we should follow the example of these two great witnesses and put the love of Christ before everything else. Then we will know the truth and the freedom from sin and fear that Christ brings. Let us listen once more to Paul in conclusion. What compels us? What is my principle of action? Why do I do the things I do? If we are Christians, then like Peter and Paul, the love of Christ compels us. And it compels us to acknowledge that all are one in Christ Jesus, and that any appeals to things like identity politics, any appeals we make to single ourselves out and gain power over others and autonomy for ourselves, all of this must be put away so that we can put on the new man, Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever.